Well, hey, I'm excited that you guys are here. Uh, I'm really excited about today's sermon. Uh, as I was telling the first service crowd, sometimes sermons just come together and they just go super well as far as prep goes, and other times they are just a drag, and uh, like drag as far as like, what am I supposed to talk about, and how do I interact and incorporate this? And so I'm super happy to tell you this is one of those. It was clear as day from the beginning. And so I'm just excited to share with you uh, a little bit, and again, I keep hinting at this, but where we're at as a church, but then also the steps that we're moving forward, uh, moving forward into together as a church. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, so I want to start off and I want to ask you a question, and the question is this, who is someone that you have looked up to or admired from afar at some point in your life? Someone that you've looked up to and maybe you've put on a high pedestal or you've followed them and you've modeled your life after them or you've tried to make decisions like them to end up like them, whatever it is, but here's the catch, you can't have met this person or you only met them once. Okay, so let me throw out a couple um, that I would choose, okay? First one comes to mind, this is just a no-brainer, Michael Jordan, right? Come on, best basketball player of all time, LeBron's fans, the door's right there, you know? So Michael Jordan, he's our guy, he's our man, best basketball player ever. He's a guy, man, I just, think about the game, I just can't get rid of this one. The game that he was sicker than a dog and still obliterated the competition, okay? And rings, right? He's got a lot of rings. LeBron, let's just compare, the weight doesn't balance out, moving on. Maybe, maybe it's a president or a former president or a leader that you've served under, worked under, followed. You know, I pick Ronald Reagan because Ronald Reagan, the character of this man who led us through a very significant crisis, many of you Many of you really looked up to him and admired him during his presidency and also after his presidency. And so not, we're not going into politics today. You can calm down. You can unclench, whatever. We're, we're just going to relax. But, but a president, maybe that's someone that you just looked up to or admired in the past. Let's go to the next one. Maybe you're, you're a little bit more uh, philanthropic. I can't even say it. Maybe you're philanthropic. Right? Did I say that right? Maybe you're a little bit more focused. Uh, a, a, a woman like Oprah who really has entered the world stage over the last couple decades of her life and made a tremendous impact uh, through things like eradicating poverty, bringing water to places that need water, bringing medication, bringing medical care. Uh, a woman who has uh, great influence and great wealth and how she stewarded that for the sake and the benefit of other people. Maybe it's someone like this. This is Billy Graham. He hasn't been gone from us for too long, but maybe, maybe a guy like this or a guy like Charles Stanley or Judah Smith or, or a, a pastor or evangelist or someone who was able to speak God's word to your heart at some point in your life and you've just held this person on such a high esteem or on a high platform uh, all throughout maybe your life or since you met them. I'm just trying to ask you to help you get to think, you know, who is someone that you've looked up to or admired from afar? Because here's the thing, and if you've ever met this person, whoever it is in your mind, if you've ever met them or if you've ever interacted with them, you know that oftentimes this is true, that the closer you get to them or when you shake their hand for the first time or when you talk for the first time, often they are not what you thought they were. You tracking with me? All of a sudden you show up and you're like, they are way shorter than I thought. TV makes them look huge and they're big, but he's just a little guy, you know? Or maybe, maybe it's like, wow, I, I really thought he had more personality. Didn't really anticipate. This is something um, I don't do often, 
um, but I try to, uh, is anytime I go to like a conference or something like that, I will typically, you know, kind of just nonchalantly, I'll act like I'm looking at the floor and trying to like, oh, how do they do the floor as I slowly make my way upstage where all the speakers are or like about what they're walking through or talking through before they're allowed to speak. And so I just did it recently. Uh, it's called the Global Leadership Conference. And I was in Chicago and I just meandered up. My badge says I don't belong on the floor. I don't belong anywhere, but I don't care. I'm just walking up. I'm like, I'll, I'll stay till someone kicks me out which is what happened, right? Because you just have this guy in this day and age, so I'm just walking around like this, looking at the stage and looking at the speakers, and Mr. Security with his earpiece comes over, uh, can I help you? He said, just looking, right? And the alarm bells are going off in his head, right? You can leave right now. But I just, I like getting close. I like getting proximate. I, I like getting up close because I want to see what people really are like. And so where we're at right now in this in this story or in this series, we've been tracking with a guy named Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet of God who was called to speak to the people on behalf of God. And he had a message for them. And the message was turn away from these idols that you've replaced God with. One of them was Baal. And Brian talked about this the last couple of weeks, but these people that just worshipped Baal, it's this fake God. They made him out of gold. They melted it and crafted it so it looks like a calf, and they worshipped it. They sang to it. They cut themselves. They hurt themselves. They were worshipping. And God says, Elijah, I want you to go speak to my people, but I want you to demonstrate who I am to them. And so Elijah, we're going to jump in here in a second, but Elijah prays for no rain. He says, God, plug it up. Stop the rain. And for three and a half years, it doesn't rain. And Elijah finds himself one day after three and a half years on a mountain, and it's him and then hundreds of Baal worshipers. And Elijah says this, I'm going to demonstrate God's power for you today so that you'll know that he is the real God. So he comes up with a competition, and he says, whichever God rains down fire from heaven and sets your altar afire, that's the real God. Sounds like a good challenge, right? It's a good test. It's hard to deny that. So the people agree and they do all their things and they worship and they're cutting and they're trying to get their God's attention, but their God doesn't exist. So nothing happens. Then it's Elijah's turn. They go, all right, you go. Let's see what happens. You know, expecting like, yeah, no God's going to do anything. And Elijah says, let's just have some fun because I want to remove all shred of doubt from your minds that my God is the true God. So I want you to soak the altar. I want you to soak the offering. I want you to soak the wood. I want you to soak everything. And it's a drought, remember? I want you to remove all doubt. There's no, there's no way anything but God could set this ablaze. And sure enough, he goes right in front of all the people and he says, all right, God, prove it. You're up. And boom, fire from heaven lights up and it lights up this entire altar and sacrifice. And the people have no doubt in their mind that Elijah's God was the true God. But here's the thing about the Israelites, is the Israelites, years, decades, centuries after Elijah, kept revisiting that enactment. In their minds, Elijah was on such high of a pedestal that they could never measure up. Elijah was the standard. No one would ever, ever get close. And so you fast forward a couple decades and a couple centuries, and then Jesus enters the scene. And Jesus brings a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of his followers, and so they start following him and learning from him. And his brother, Jesus' own brother named James, grows up with Jesus. And here, just a question, right? Time out, side note. What would you have to do growing up to convince one of your siblings that you are the son of God? I'm just saying. 
Um, this is fun too, because I didn't know he was coming, but my brother's here this morning. Do you know what I would have had to do to convince him that I was the son of God? He had no doubt in his mind that I was a sinner like everybody else, right? Because he was the punching bag a lot of times. But what would you have to do, for those of you that had siblings, what would you have to do to convince your own brother and your own family that you are actually God's son who was sent to redeem and restore the world? Think about the credibility here. James was a skeptic for years and years and years. And then he finally was following his brother long after they're adults. And he's following and he's listening. And he goes, you are the son of God. You've won me. I'm in agreement with you. You are the son of God. And so James is writing early in the church. And he's writing to all the church. And James says this. This is James 5, 17. If you have a Bible, pull out your Bible. Otherwise, we'll have it up on screen. James says this, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's powerful. It's effective. And not a lot of us would disagree with that or argue with that. But here's what he says right after. He says this, remember, he's writing to the church, a group of Israelites and Jews and Gentiles who knew of Elijah. He says this, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Think about the statement for a second. It's easy for us to read this and go, oh, Elijah was a guy just like us. That's fine. Move on. But James was speaking specifically to this group of people that said, I know you've put him on a pedestal. I know you've made him separate. Like he's unattainable. He sets the standard. But I just want to tell you that Elijah was a human being just like you and me. So I don't know a lot of Greek, um, as a lot of you know. <laughs> uh, can't fool you, right? I've tried before. I've struggled. Um, moment of authenticity and grace. Uh, Greek was the least favorite subject I've ever taken, and it was also the subject that I have done absolutely horrible at, and I had to have a professor um, squeeze me through, you know, with a little bit of leeway helping me get through this. So with that in mind, you have that in mind? You go, okay, am I a scholar, yes or no? No, thank you for those who are very confident in that. So here's what I want to share with you today, though. When James writes this in James 5, he uses two words that are really particular and they're really specific. And the reason he does this, and this is why I'm horrible at Greek, okay? I just don't get it. And frankly, I don't really care, okay? There's people out there. They get it. I just read their stuff. So this is what they've said. Because in Greek... The language, this is weird. We don't do this in English, okay? Am I painting this picture good enough for you? In Greek, to have such a specific meaning of a word, you can actually combine two words into one. And so it's like, yeah, I don't know how to describe this. I'm just going to make a new word. But everyone will know what it means when I combine them. That's what he does. And James, when he uses this phrase, he uses this, he says, ordinary, the word ordinary, like Elijah was ordinary. He was a man just like us. When he uses this phrase, what he is saying specifically in communicating to the people is this, that he had the same emotions, the same passions, and the same weaknesses as anybody else. That in his utmost highs, right, when he's on top of the mountain and he experiences God, the utmost highs, he experiences great confidence. And he expresses it, right, an extreme type of confidence. But also at his worst moments, 
In his times of deepest weakness, he exhibits extreme doubt and extreme despair. James is saying this is a guy, although God did something extraordinary through him, that he experienced God in an extraordinary way, James is saying Elijah is just an ordinary guy. He's just like you and me. But then in the next phrase, another Greek one, I'm trying, he says this, the word earnestly. And again, in English language, it's easy for us just to read and skip past it and whatnot. But when he uses the word earnestly in Greek, <clears throat> it means he prayed regularly and he prayed persistently. And it's talking about the three and a half years that he said, God, please plug up the sky. Don't let it rain. I want you to demonstrate who you are and your presence to the people. And so his, his prayer and his earnest prayer, he prayed regularly and persistently. But that prayer, again, this is like that splicing of words. That word in regards to earnestly is in reference to prayer, closely intertwined and integrated with faith. So here's a question. What is faith? Because as we think about different characters in the Bible, characters like Abraham, a guy who, who God said, I'm putting a call on your life and I'm going to lead you to the wilderness, but I'm going to make your descendants so many. You will be the father of many nations that, that there are millions and millions of people that will be your, your offspring, your lineage, so much so that you can look at the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. Abraham, I'm going to do that through you. Abraham took faith and stepped out and said, okay, I'll trust you. Just like Moses, early in the Old Testament, God says, Moses, I want to send you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to rescue my people. I want you to pull them out of Egypt. I want you to walk them through the wilderness. And then at this time, as they're leaving, there's hundreds of thousands of Israelites, slaves that have now been liberated, and they find themselves between the Red Sea and between the Egyptian army who's coming to destroy them and to take them back into captivity, back to Egypt. And Moses, stuck between a rock and a hard place, it says, God, I trust you, and I have faith in you. And it says, God parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked across the sea on dry land. A woman named Esther, who grew up in the king's service, or didn't grow up, but she grew up under the king's rule, and the king brought her up, and the king eventually said, I want to marry her. And so the king marries this woman named Esther, who uncovers a plot of genocide to wipe out her people. And in faith, she comes to the king, and she expresses, this is what I've learned, and this is what I'm telling you. My people are at risk, and she put her own life at risk, but under faith said, I just want to let you know, and she saved her people from genocide. Peter, a man who healed a bunch of people. Paul, a guy who was in prison and literally the chains on his hands broke off and the jail gates broke open after he prayed. God has done extraordinary things through very ordinary people. So as we talk about faith and what is it, this is what I believe all of us are at or this is kind of what I'm hoping to solve or speak to today. And maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but it's this. I believe we all want to know God and experience him in an extraordinary way. Because we can all relate to the extreme highs. We can all especially relate to the extreme lows. And if a prerequisite to experiencing God in an extraordinary way doesn't mean you have to be an extraordinary person, all of a sudden that gives hope for all of us to experience him the way that God was always, uh, the way he was always desired to be experienced. 
So uh, to talk about faith or to talk about how do I get that kind of faith in which I can experience, in which I can know God in an extraordinary way, I want to jump in uh, to Matthew. So again, if you have your Bible, open it up. We'll have it on the screen here for you too. But Matthew 17, verse 20. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's talking to them about faith and he says this, Jesus, he replied, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So if you don't know what a mustard seed is, if you don't have a green thumb, if you just, honestly, if you just don't care, I brought a picture for you, just in case. So here's a picture. This is what a mustard plant looks like. So this was native and indigenous to this part of the world at this time. It's a mustard plant. They would use it for a variety of different things, but, but the mustard plant comes from a mustard seed. Hey, you've heard this one before. This is what a mustard seed looks like, or a lot of mustard seeds. But here's the thing. I I don't want you to be confused, and I don't want you to miss it, because these look big on the screen with a great camera and a whole lot of zoom, but this actually, mustard seeds can be black or they can be yellow, but when you actually look at them in the palm of your hand, they look like this. You see how small that is? So I, I brought some of these up here, and I have a disclaimer. This isn't actually a mustard seed. It looks just like it, but it's actually way bigger. And I tried to get it so that you at least have something to look at, something tangible, you know, if you can see it from out there. This is a mustard seed. And so Jesus, in talking to his disciples, said this. It's almost as if he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He says, you just need a little more faith. Like, you you don't have enough. You don't have enough faith. But if you had even the smallest amount of faith like this mustard seed, you could point to this mountain, which is Mount Hermon, this is right where it, like, the context was that Jesus is saying this, you could point to that mountain and say, move. And it would move. He says, nothing is impossible for you, but if you have faith this big, like a mustard seed, if you only had this, you'd be able to move that. Nothing would be impossible for you. But here's the really cool thing about this passage, because it's, it's really like, how do, I, how do I remedy that? How do I get that type of faith? How many of you have maybe heard someone say, you don't have to raise your hand, but um, if you've prayed for something and you didn't get it, or, or you were looking for something, or you expected God to do something and he didn't, oftentimes other people, um, not with good theology or good footing, will say this, oh, you just need more faith. Just manufacture some more faith. Just give yourself more faith. Just do that. And this is why it's wrong. And this is why it's so important that we're sharing or talking about this today is because faith can't be manufactured. It can't be conceived. It can't, there's nothing that we can do to control faith because faith is a gift from God. And this is why I say that. And this is why we're going to unpack this here together because we're, we're going to go back to that Matthew 17 passage. Because again, am I a scholar? Yes or no? No. So just thank you for the overzealous response. I'm not a scholar. But I did homework. And I'm, I'm going to challenge you. Go home. Wrestle through this. Look it up. Research it. Because what Jesus says, this is so cool. There are some manuscripts that have fallen in manuscripts. The Bible, I don't know if you guys know this too, the Bible is one of the most reliable books in the world. 
Because there's so many copies, if you ever hear someone say, it can't be trusted because there's, there's been too many hands and too many people on it, do you know that that actually served the academic community? Because with different iterations or translations, they could actually take all of those and trace them back one at a time and one at a time and one at a time. And so we actually can know throughout history that we have a book that is trustworthy and reliable, that's backed by history that's backed by historical characters, that's backed by events that really happened. And so in this book, there's a disagreement in the academic community about one verse that follows this line, that follows this. And so some have it in there, some don't. Again, I'm not an academic scholar, but I'm just sharing this with you because I think the next line that Jesus says is really important. And here's what Jesus says in some of these very old manuscripts. It says this, But this kind, talking about faith, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So this is interesting and important because here's Jesus, and he's talking to his disciples, and he's saying, You guys don't have enough faith. You don't have enough. If you only had a little, the faith like a mustard seed, if you only had this much, you could move mountains, literally. But faith as a gift from God only comes from what? Prayer and fasting. Here's how this ties back into what we were talking about with James. As we look at Elijah, as James is writing this, Elijah, Elijah was just an ordinary average man, just like us. And he didn't have extraordinary faith. He didn't. But through prayer and through fasting for three and a half years on his knees before God saying, God, please stop the heavens from raining. God, please bring fire down from heaven. God, please show yourself. Please demonstrate yourself. God, please give me the faith to trust that what you say and what you do will happen. God, give me that faith. And for three and a half years, what happened? It happened. Because the faith, even as small as a mustard seed, can move mountains. So what is faith? If I have to talk about faith or describe it, faith is simply this. Faith is belief from knowledge or experience. And so it starts here, right? It starts in the word. It starts in God's word. If you're not reading God's word, my encouragement and my plea with you is that you would make this a priority in your life. That you would read and you would open it up because faith comes out of a knowledge of who God is and how he works. This is the truth. And so oftentimes when we say, oh, I have faith, what we're saying is I have confidence and I have enough gusto that I can take a step and hope something happens, but it lacks truth. So, so faith starts with truth. It starts with God's word, but then you add action. Brian talked about this last week. Uh, he talked about a guy named Cortez, this uh, like conqueror, and he would sail these ships with his sailors and troops and whatever, and when they would get to a new place, they would unload the ships, they would unload the guys, they would get, and he would wait until the guys were inland, and then he would send the ships back out, and he would say, guys, burn them. Light them on fire. So imagine, you're one of his conquistadors. You're, you're going through the woods, and all of a sudden they're like, what's the smoke behind us? And you turn around and you see your entire fleet of ships on fire. What does that do to your confidence? Because it just eroded your escape route. That was his point. 
It changes things. It's not a, okay, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to hope and hope for the best, but in case it doesn't work out, I have an exit option. It's taking a full step forward with no return available. So that's what he's talking about in action, but then the confidence is also attached to it, the confidence that knowing God's word and understanding God's word and experiencing God's word gives me the confidence to know that what he says is true and can be trusted. So here's what I love. If I can boil this down just for you guys, um, it would be this. God uses ordinary people to accomplish the extraordinary. And I want you to say this last part with me. Through faith. Say it one more time. Through faith. That God, in his mercy and in his goodness, all throughout scripture, doesn't look for the extraordinary. He doesn't look for the qualified. He doesn't look for the one with a good rap sheet. He doesn't look for the one who just has utmost faith and confidence even. God looks for the ordinary who's willing to say yes. Who's willing to take a step. Who's willing to pray and fast and say, God, please give me the faith to trust you with that which matters most to me. And to what end? This is so important. This is the last piece we need to understand. Is that God always uses faith and he uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways, always, for the benefit, the restoration, the redemption of other people. All throughout history. And it culminates with a guy named Jesus. Everything God does is he takes the ordinary, the unspecial, the bland, the person who's overlooked or the person who's imprisoned or the person who's caught up in sin or he takes that person and he says with just a little bit of faith like a mustard seed, I can change the world. So this is a cool story. Um, When I was in college, I took a mission trip to Belize. You guys have heard a lot of stories that I've shared with you in the past uh, about traveling overseas, and I really believe uh, I hear God differently when I'm out of my context. I hear God differently when I'm out of my country and out of my home and I'm out of my normal schedule. And so, side note, encouragement, uh, get out of your comfort zone. Get out of whatever's normal to you and go out and just say, God, please show me yourself in a different way or an unusual way. Uh, But I want to show you this picture. This picture, this guy's name is Paul Wisnant. And uh, Paul has this really weird story. I met him in Belize. He was the missionary in Belize. And uh, I asked him once, or somebody in our group said, hey, Paul, tell us the story about how you got here and how you started. And so Paul is the guy on the left. And he said, this is the story. When I was in college, this guy came to my campus. And this is 40 years ago, guys. Um, This guy came to my campus, and he was really excited. And he said, hey, I'm offering mission trips to Belize. If you want to go, it's 1000 bucks. I need 1000 bucks. You need to bring 10 cans of tuna with you. Okay, cool. And so Paul's like, I'm feeling impulsive. You know, that sounds fun. So Paul signed up and so did nine other people, but they, they weren't just college students. They were, they were, you know, a whole mix of people with different backgrounds and professions. And so here's what happens. Paul jumps on the plane. They land in Belize and this group of 10 people, they never met each other before, but they're all, they're like, okay, so what, what are we doing on this trip again? And, and what's the reason? And why do we have like a hundred cans of tuna? You know, this seems like a little overkill. Here's what they found out. This guy wanted a free vacation. That was it. He wanted to go see some buddies in Belize, so he had tricked 10 people to buy a plane ticket to give him $1,000 so he could buy these tickets, and he took all the extra cash, and he went and had fun and left the 10 people at the airport. 
what? This is a real story. So eight out of the 10 people go, this is stupid. And they turned right back around. They went up to the ticket office. They swiped their cards or whatever they did. They got on a plane that day and they flew out. Guess who couldn't fly out? Paul, as a college student, and one other guy. Now, think about this. Logically, why can't he fly out? Because he's broke. He's got nothing. So now he's stuck in Belize for a week. And they said, by the way, what's your meal plan? Like, are you feeding us or whatever? They found out real quick, the 10 cans of tuna. They're supposed to eat tuna for a week. And so here's Paul, horrible experience. He's mad, he's angry, he got duped. He's stuck in the jungle. He, I mean, it's just, it was a horrible experience. So Paul comes back to the States. A year or two years later, as he's still in college, it was in spring, and in his relationship with God, this, it was just weird. He said, I felt like God was just stirring in my heart to go back to Belize. And he hated Belize. He said, I just feel like he's just stirring in me. and just call. So here's what he did. He went, and if you have a college student in your life, you, this is easy for you to imagine. He didn't tell anybody. He just went to the airport with two bags, bought a ticket for Belize, and flew out. And it took his parents six months to figure out where he was. They finally call him, and they're like, what are you doing in Belize? We've never even heard of Belize. What? Where is that? And so he's describing, this is where I am. I'm fine. I'm healthy, whatever. But I just felt like God called me here, and so I took a step of faith. Do you know what happened with this guy? He showed up to a place in Belize, which was known as just like a, a spiritual desert with witch doctors ruling the land and you know, evil spirits and sorcery that had just overcome. And Paul shows up, and it takes him a long time, and he had a lot of struggle, but he said, I feel like God has me here, and I have the faith to trust him and to trust his word that he's good. And so Paul, in his time there, he, Paul has now been in Belize for, I think, over 35 years He's been serving there. He's a church planter. He made his first disciple in that first year. And I think, don't quote me on this, I think it was this guy or this guy was early on because we met him. Um, and again, this was like five or six years ago. And as Paul tells the story, this guy became two and then three and then five and then 10. And in Paul's tenure as a missionary in Belize over the last 35 years, has planted over 200 churches, has reached thousands of people with the gospel, has raised up and equipped pastors all over Belize to go to every part of Belize and to the point that Paul actually now has a relationship with the prime minister of Belize. You probably never heard of him. Me neither. I don't know his name. But the prime minister is the head of state of Belize. He's like the president equivalent. And here's another thing I don't understand, but Britain owns or leases, I don't know, Belize. So the queen is technically in charge, and the prime minister is underneath him. And Paul, through his faithfulness, through God's faithfulness, as Paul has walked and followed God saying, I believe that you've called me here, and I believe, I believe you have a purpose for me, and I believe you're doing something, has met so many different people and has totally transformed a place that was a spiritual desert 35 years ago to a place that breeds the gospel. What a cool story of what? of faith. God loves to use ordinary people to do the extraordinary. And so I mentioned this before, but, but Elijah, 
was just a mere reflection or a mere foretaste of one who was to come who was much better. And his name is Jesus. That Jesus even came, his own birth that we're going to celebrate in just a couple, couple months. His birth was nothing extraordinary, but ordinary. Not surrounded by kings and dignitaries, but surrounded by sheep and cattle in a barn in a no-name town. And yet Jesus, when we put our faith in him, what he did is he went to the cross and he said, here's the thing, I can do what you can't do. I can take your sin, I can take your shame, I can take your guilt, I can take your struggles, I can take whatever it is, that, that badness in you, the thing that weighs you down, I can take all of that and I can take it on a cross for you. And here's my ask, Jesus saying this to all of us even, I want you to put your faith in me that I can do that for you. This is why this is so important to us right now. Because where we're at um, is we're about to enter into a really significant season here at Frontline. And I'm going to invite the band to come back up. They're going to get situated. Um, but just this is really fun for me to share with you. Um, we believe God's at work in this place. We really believe, and we don't say that in a cliche type of way, what we really believe is that God has brought very specific and particular people from a whole variety of different contexts and backgrounds and faith and whatever, and he's brought them here to this place. And we just believe as pastors, as staff, as a leadership team, that God is just doing something right now that we're really trying to sense and trying to discern and trying to understand what he's doing and what he's leading us to. And as you leave today, I, just, I would love to have you just peek at that Next Steps area because we have a quote on there. And, and the quote goes something like this. Uh, we believe our mission is yet to be fulfilled until zero people have been unchanged by the gospel of Jesus. Until zero. There's so many churches in Grand Rapids and so many people, but we see our mission as given by God is to continue to reach and build relationships with new people regardless of the cost for us until zero people are unchanged and unaffected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it changed our lives. As we've read today, God loves to use the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. He loves to do that, but it's always for the benefit of other people. If you're a small group leader uh, in this room, you, you've heard me say this a number of times because this, as as leaders of people, we have been entrusted with that which is most important to God, and that's every one of you. That there's nothing that matters more than your heart to God. Do you know that? Because so many times, I just need a reminder, guys, just being straight with you. You know, my prayer time when I, I pray with God, and oftentimes I just come and I go, this is, this is where I'm at, God. I don't offer a whole lot. You know my insecurities. You know my fault. You know my sin. You know where I'm at. You know, you know how I feel. And I just want to give it to you. And this is this. And every time I say, do you have anything you want to say to me? Do you know what the first thing I hear from him is? David, I love you. Some of you just need that reminder today. That the God of the universe loves you. 
And he's called us on a mission that if you've received that and if you've, you've understood that Jesus is the one that we put our faith in, you also understand that the calling of being a follower of Jesus is to take that same message to a world that so desperately needs him. And so this season, this is where we're at. I mean, just to share some of the specifics with you, as we're approaching this and going, okay, we believe God's called us to be a presence in our community, to reach every person on the planet with the gospel of Jesus, and we won't stop until, but we have needs. We have things that can actually stand in our way of that. We have decisions that are coming before us as a staff and as a leadership team and as a church going, okay, the decisions we make in the next season because of the needs and because of the timeline of these decisions, we need to know what to do. And so we're going to move into a season of prayer and fasting together as a church because let me just share some of these needs with you. Um, One of our needs is the sound system. For those of you that don't know, our sound system was purchased by Brian, our lead pastor, in the 80s on eBay. Bet you didn't know that one. Tweet that later. And here's the thing. You may say, oh, it sounds fine and it sounds great to me and I don't notice the difference and it's fine. Here's the understanding because I, I, I would be the first to say, whatever, we keep moving on. This could become a cap for us very quickly in accomplishing the mission that God has given us because it's not where it needs to be for us to move forward to take next steps. We have a thing called the storehouse right next door. I don't know if you know about the storehouse, um, but the storehouse is this kind of platform in which God has used to build relationships and network with nonprofits and churches all throughout Grand Rapids to service people in their deepest time of need by equipping the nonprofits and churches that accomplish that. And we share a space with them, and I don't know if you knew this either, but our roof is horrible. We need a roof. We're going to be the first people to say, we don't want our money to go to stuff like this if it doesn't have to, but God, we're going to trust you to provide for us if this is a need, because if this is a cap for doing what you want us to do, then we need to address it, and we're going to take a step of what? Faith to say, okay, God, these are the needs, you know them. Here are other decisions that are big ones. Um, We need to know what to do with our, our center campus down in Byron Center. Our center campus is still going, it's growing, but we need to know how to better equip and serve them as a church and also to care for them as a church. What about other campuses? If we're gonna reach more people, we need to know what decisions we need to make to plant more campuses or to reach more people. Do you see why this is a really important time for us as a church? There are big, significant decisions and the last one, I don't wanna leave this one out. What if God is up to something with this group, with this church at this time that we don't yet see? And what we want, and what I'm going to ask you and challenge you, is to pray today for faith like a mustard seed. God, give me just a little bit of faith so that I can step up and step into what you're doing. That through prayer and fasting, we might receive this faith from you to trust you and to follow you into this next phase and this next season as a church. So here's what I want to do just as we wrap up. Uh, There's a note card on your seat. Would you grab that? Just grab it, pull it out. And on the note card, I just have two questions for you. The first question is this, and it's up on the screen for you. What's something that you need to stop putting your faith in and trust God instead? If you're like me, oftentimes there's things like money. 
There's things like a job. There's things like uh, my ability to impress people or my ability to lead or to speak or to do or to provide that often gets in the way of us actually putting all of our faith into God with that which is most important to us. And so I just want to challenge you and give you an opportunity. What's something that you can identify in your life that you currently put your faith in? Bank account, relationship, job, family, whatever that is. What's something you've put your faith in that you need to stop and put that instead in your relationship with Jesus and say, God, I trust you more than that. I just want you to write that down on one side of the card. Here's the last question I have. It's because we understand that not all of you are Jesus followers. That not all of you have put your faith in Jesus. And here's the thing, as a, as a pastor, I love this part because we want to give you an opportunity today to answer this one. Do you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time today? I get emotional. I'm not an emotional guy. But I remember this moment for me in my life. And I said, God, I don't bring anything to the table. But I'm going to ask you to give me faith the size of a mustard seed to trust you for who you are and I'm going to give my life to you and trusting that you'll do something extraordinary with it. If that's you, I just want to ask you, would you just write your name on that card so we can start praying for you? So what we're going to do is, um, these aren't mustard seeds, I already told you that. Um, there's actually a guy in first service that walked up, picked up the seed and ate it. And I went, that's bird seed, so that's awkward. So I'm going to encourage you not to eat the seeds. But what I would love for you to do is to come up and to bring that note card and to offer it as a gift, as an offering to the Lord. And these are going to be sitting up here, and I want you to trade them. I want you to exchange that note card, the thing that you're giving up, and I want you to take this seed as a representation of God. I'm asking for faith in you. Instead, would you please give me this faith? So... With that said, would you just pray with me? God, we love you. The only thing we bring is ourselves and our hearts, and I just pray that you would work among us right now and today, that you would stir in our hearts an ability to trust you with what's most important to us. And in this time as we respond and as we lean into you, Father, I just pray that you would stir in the hearts of your people, that you would call your people back to you, that you would meet them in their place of need, that you would speak to their hearts and that they would understand and know that you are the true God that can be trusted and our faith can be put in you. We love you, Father. We lift all of this up in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen.